This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. In a digital world that demands your attention, it can be challenging to build your own worldview. The Financial Times brings you rigorous and independent global journalism, so you can see more angles and find time to think for yourself. Don't jump to conclusions. Read to them instead. Fearlessly Pink. Financial Times. Read more at ft.com slash fearless. Across Northern Ireland, on your radio and on BBC Sounds. This is The Stephen Nolan Show! Hello there. We really appreciate you downloading this podcast from the BBC. And don't forget, we're here fighting for you every day of the week. If you want to contact us, nolan at bbc.co.uk. I hope you enjoy today's podcast. The Stephen Nolan Show! Lots of us want to know, don't we? Lots of us want to plan our finances. What type of extra bills, what type of extra charges may we be hit with over the next 12 months or so? The First Minister, Michelle O'Neill, has ruled out a 15% increase in regional rates here. Now, why is that 15% figure? Where's that come from? Well, that would be, many people argue, the quickest way, the easiest way. Some are saying the only way to raise the £113 million that has suddenly popped up, suddenly been declared. Uh, the British government saying, you want that £3.3 billion quid that, 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 that was promised to Northern Ireland, that was hailed as a, a massive solution for Northern Ireland? And my goodness, a lot of that money will be very welcome. But the British government have suddenly declared, do you know what? You want the money? You've got to find £113 million of extra charges of revenue raising from the people of Northern Ireland. So where does that come from? That's the debate. Now, the parties are saying, we didn't agree to this. That's Sinn Féin. They said, we didn't, we didn't sign up to this, as is the DUP. But they've gone back into government and the British government is saying, show us the money. Show us where you're going to get this from. So... Should it be from household rates, business rates, for example, um, could be part of that. If uh, 4% is the, the, the figure aligning with inflation, then will they stick at 4% or will they go way, way over it and hit that 15% hit on you in your pocket in order to raise the $113 million? Or will the political parties stay united in saying it's too difficult for people? People don't have enough money in their pocket. Last night on Nolan Live, I asked the DUP's community minister, Gordon Lyons, where the British government and the parties can agree on what they've agreed or what they haven't agreed. And where did this £113 million come from? Let's hear what the minister said. Well, Stephen, as you know, this is an issue that we have been raising for many years, since 2016, when Philip Hammond was the uh, Chancellor. I'm glad that we have uh, made uh, some progress on this, and the government are now at a point uh, where they recognise that Northern Ireland has been funded under need. And uh, we welcome that we have uh, made that progress. That was uh, a long journey, uh, 
the other parties weren't always with us on that, but we glad, we're glad that we've now got uh, to that stage. But there's a problem. And the problem is that the government has not backdated that extra money uh, that we need. We have been underfunded according to need for a number of years. They've recognised that there is a problem, but they've not backdated that to when that problem started. And so, that's why we're facing so many of the financial challenges that we are today. My goodness, listen to this word progress that I hear now. I think you said it a couple of times already in this interview. That's a far cry away from what Sir Geoffrey Donaldson was saying for two years. We're not going to be time-led. We're not going to be calendar-led. We won't go back in until the deal is right. How did you not get the money right? Well, look, we never said that uh, our withdrawal from the Northern Ireland Assembly and the executive was to do with financial issues. Uh, we took the decision that we took in order to bring the EU back to the negotiating table, in order to get improvements um, uh, and, and a sustainable basis uh, for moving forward in terms of, of, of power sharing. And that's what we have been able uh, to do. But we have continued uh, to work on those financial issues uh, as well. And I am glad that the other parties have now recognised that there was an issue. I'm, I'm glad that they're on board uh, with this as well. But the fundamental truth is that we have been underfunded according to need and we need to get to the stage where we have... Out? Why didn't funds? you put money? Because money is hitting people very hard during this cost of living crisis. On behalf of all of those people who are now terrified that revenue raising means it'll push them over the edge, why didn't you stay out until you got the details of this deal around money hammered out? You didn't do it. Well, well, we took we took a principled position and we set out very clearly to the electorate what our issues were in terms of the protocol and the uh, Windsor framework. Uh, and we returned to government once those issues uh, uh, were dealt to to our satisfaction. Um, yeah. well, these the are issues that were going for a long time. The green lane exists, doesn't it? No, they, these are issues that have been going on for a long time in relation to the funding. And we, we have uh, got into a much better place than we were before, but we need to finish that job and the government needs to recognise uh, the need to, to backdate that money to make sure that we're put and, on, a, on a much more stable and, financial thing. Okay, but this is all about negotiation. This is all about what leverage do you have. So if the government say, no, you're not getting the money unless you raise the 113 million we've told you you've got to raise. What are you going to do? You're well, hardly going to work well, out well, the executive again, are you? So what are you going to do? Well, look, they have recognised and they have, have conceded that there has been an issue, that Northern Ireland has been underfunded. And looking ahead, they're seeking to, to change that. That's welcome. That's good. What they haven't done uh, is backdated that funding. And that's where we need to see uh, the change uh, happen. Or what? So, look, What's your leverage? Well, look, um, we're going to continue pressing uh, the government on this. We have been successful on, on uh, a number of stages along the way here in terms of the, of the finance. There is more work to do and we'll continue. How have you uh, been successful with that. the finance? Because we're now in a far better position than we previously were when there was no acknowledgement that Northern Ireland was funded uh, underneath, uh, where there was uh, no additional uh, money uh, going to be provided. I remember sitting uh, with the Secretary of State in Erskine House in Belfast and him telling but, me what a good financial situation we had in Northern Ireland compared to his but, own but, but, constituents. But, but, but and we've I, made that point and we made those changes and there is additional funding coming to Northern Ireland. But as we said... In December time, this doesn't go all the way. This isn't everything uh, that uh, we require in order to put our finances on a sustainable uh, footing. 
But I'm confused because you're telling me throughout this interview that you didn't. Your negotiation about going back into the executive was not about money. It was about getting the EU back around the table and the principles around that. And now you've just told me in your last answer that you're, 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 you're proud uh, of the, the, the progress you've been able to make around money. So which is it? I think it's very clear what I'm saying, Stephen. But I'll say it again. Has there been progress made in relation to the the government's position in terms of financing Northern Ireland? Absolutely. We're in a far better place than we were a, a year ago. We have additional resource. That is very welcome. That's good. But... Uh, there is still, there remains a, a problem. Those problems would um, be largely dealt with if we could have uh, that backdating uh, of the uh, resource. Um, if you could we, have it. So you've got, yes, to, you've got to ask the British government politely now. It does come back to that question. I think it's a fair question. Or what? Are you going to walk again? Would you walk out again? Look, what's what's your leverage? We're not... We're not planning here to, to fail as an executive. We are united uh, in uh, presenting the case. We have been successful in doing that uh, in the in the past, and we'll present that case again about the additional funding that's required. The problem is that the government is now introducing this demand uh, for uh, revenue raising to be included. And like I can tell you, here in my own constituency in East Antrim, um, that is something that is concerning for people here because we have families, working families, who are struggling to pay their mortgages, to pay for fuel, to pay for childcare. And the last thing that they need uh, is this massive increase on their rates. Did you agree? You, you said the government's increased. now introducing this requirement for revenue raising. Minister, did you agree to it as part of your discussions with the British government of going back into an executive? Yes or no? No. There was no uh, agreement. In fact, Stephen, I have uh, the notes from those meetings uh, at that time in Hillsborough Council. And was it mentioned in those notes? December, and there is there is no agreement between the parties. Agreement? Was uh, it discussed? Yes, of course. There, there, there were discussions about a number of financial issues, but there was agreement between the parties that in order for us to have that stable financial footing, we needed to uh, ensure that that money uh, was uh, backdated. And I have it here in front of me from the DUP, but, but from Sinn Féin, the Alliance, the okay. Oceans, there was unity on at that point. That's what we now need. And did the British uh, government to, agree to that? Uh, well, no, they, they, they haven't. They're clearly uh, stating now that that is uh, a requirement. And so you all discussed it in it. December. You're think, seasoned politicians. You, you, you are asked on behalf of people of Northern Ireland to negotiate on their behalf. So there you were in a discussion in December. It's written in that red book you've got that you're discussing it. I could discuss getting whatever, 10 million quid a show for talking to you from the BBC. Unless I get it in writing, which I never would, it means nothing. So why didn't you nail it? Well, look, Stephen, the progress has been made. We have got further than the we, we, we were before. And that's what happens sometimes in politics. You have to make progress. You get you get what you can. Uh, this wasn't an agreement that we had, had signed up to, but we are committed okay. as an executive to continue to make the case. And Stephen, I think that's I think that's reasonable. And I think that most people in Northern Ireland will actually be supportive of what it is that we're uh, trying to so achieve. So to be to be clear, Minister. So the, it was discussed, revenue raising was discussed in December, but it was not agreed. Is that the position of the DUP? There, there was no uh, agreement. The, the government has been has mentioned um, the issue of, of revenue raising, but there was no, and like all the parties have been clear on this, there was no oh, agreement okay. uh, with the government. And why? 
Why? Because my party and I, we recognize the impact that that would have at this time. All right. And that is so, that is not the way to make sure that Northern listen, Ireland is put on a sustainable footing. Did you tell the British government in December, so we're at the, we've established that was discussed, did your party tell the British government in December, we will not revenue raise? Look, we made it clear because we understand what people in Northern Ireland are facing. We understand the pressures that work. It's a pretty simple question, are, Gordon. Are Did you tell the British government in December, you might be discussing it, we're not doing it? Yeah, there was, there was no agreement to put in place a revenue raising. That's not the raising. same thing. Did you tell them we're not doing it? Did you tell them on behalf of the people in Northern Ireland who task you to represent them, we will not revenue raise? Did you tell the British government that? In December. I, Is it in your place? Yes. Stephen, all of the parties were united uh, on that point. And why? Because here's the fundamental issue. The fundamental issue is that Northern Ireland has been underfunded according to need for a number of years. Yeah. And that is the way to fix uh, All this the parties issue. were united in what point? Are you telling me that all the parties in Northern Ireland told the British government in December, we will not agree to revenue raising? All the parties were united that the way to fix this problem is to make sure that we have that uh, funding according to need and backdate that to when that problem so, uh, occurred in what's called a in what's called a spending review. So, the, so Stephen, I think Stephen, I think I'm very clear here with you this evening. We know what the challenges are. We know where they come from. We've made those points to the government. We've made that very very clear. Uh, and uh, as an executive, we have been united, and you'll see that not just in the executive but in the assembly as well, making these points uh, to the government. You see, I guess the reason why this is so important. And I was saying this on, on the Northern Radio Show this morning, Minister. This is not some abstract uh, political discussion which will not, not so. be impacting on people very, very soon here because the British government is expecting you to revenue raise within weeks, within six weeks, right? So that's what they are saying. And I guess people in Northern Ireland, and it's not just your party, many other parties, they might have expected <coughs> you to protect them from that. And it's clear that you didn't tell the British government, no, you won't do it, because you can't answer the question that it's in your book that you told them, we will not revenue raise. So here we are now. Here we See, are. Sorry, no, 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 no. I'm going to, I'm going to come back on that because you're, you're, you're obviously not listening and not understanding what it is that I am saying. We repeatedly made it clear, uh, and I think to be fair, this was common among all parties, that you cannot put Northern Ireland on a secure and stable financial footing by asking people. Uh, for a, a rates rise of that uh, increase. There was not support from any of the parties uh, around the, the, the table in regards to that. We actually then set out what the fundamental uh, problem was and what needs to be done uh, to solve so, it. So, so has, uh, I so, think there's absolute clarity on that. So has the British government that have just done a deal with you, have they turned you over? Have uh, in, in them now demanding this revenue raising, and that means taking money off people in Northern Ireland through extra taxes. Have they turned you over within the well, first week well, of the deal? Or did they well, give you a well, heads up that they were going to do it? Look, we're continuing the discussions uh, around this, and you'll be aware uh, of that. And this isn't this isn't over. Uh, this isn't finished as far as as we're concerned. Uh, and and that ongoing debate uh, will continue. But we're going to be very very clear. We want to see Northern Ireland on a firm financial uh, footing. We want to make sure that we are protecting those that are not able to afford these sorts of um, uh, rises on their rates and. That's very much what we will be, we will be saying. So, and I, 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 I fundamentally believe 
that there are changes that we need to make in Northern Ireland. There's absolutely reform uh, and ways in which we can invest to save and, and make more efficient public services in the long term. But Stephen, we, we can't do that in one year and we can't whack up the, the rates to this uh, extent. It, it has a huge impact so the, uh, upon, upon working families. But so let's focus on where, let's focus Stephen on where the problem actually is, which is Northern Ireland being underfunded according to need. They don't have this problem in Wales. They don't have this problem in Scotland. We shouldn't have this problem here. So the, 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 the First Minister, Michelle O'Neill, has categorically ruled out a, a 15% increase uh, in rates. She hasn't ruled out an increase in rates. She's ruled out a 15% increase in rates. So where does your party stand? What would be an acceptable increase in rates against the British government's demand to raise revenue? Well, look, first of all, we need to get back to that proper funding. That's where we need to be. That's where the core uh, of this uh, problem is. The problem with the rates lever is uh, it's the only tool uh, that we have at this moment in time. Um, all of the other changes... No, that, that you could put a charge might... on tuition fees. You could implement water charges. These are political no, decisions. Sorry. No, sorry, Stephen, I don't think you're listening to what I'm saying. Um, in the immediate term, the only immediate things that we are, are able to do would be to, to use the rates lever. All of the things that you've mentioned cannot be brought in within the next number of weeks, even if there is the will uh, to, to do that. So the Secretary of State is only uh, leaving us with, with that uh, rates lever, and it is fundamentally uh, uh, an unfair one. And uh, it is not the, it's not a progressive way uh, for us to, uh, to raise uh, additional uh, resource. So if the government is serious about putting Northern Ireland on a sustainable footing in the long term, uh, you, you can't expect these rates increases to come in at this early stage and not to have an impact on businesses or on you, um, uh, households uh, in Northern Ireland. Are you Ireland. saying no to any rates increase? Look, I'm saying you need to deal with the fundamental problem. And if the rates is the only lever uh, that you're using and you need that to, to cover the, the issues that we're facing, that's going to be very, very difficult uh, yeah. for, for people. But again, Gordon, uh, I'm... I'm, I'm imagining the people I represent by asking questions on their behalf, and I'm imagining the people you, you represent because yeah. you're in politics um, to, to do that. So for those families that are finding it really tight at the minute, are you on their behalf saying you will not accept any increase in their rates as part of this revenue raising or not? Well, look, ultimately um, on... There's a there's a rates increase uh, every year, but Correct. that's not for me to go into uh, tonight. I'm not the finance minister, and those will be decisions for the executive to take. What will your party's position what can, be? And what I can do is assure people in Northern Ireland and those working families that have struggled because of the cost of childcare, the cost of filling your car, the cost of mortgages, the cost of living, I can assure them that we're going to be doing everything that we can to make sure that they are protected because we understand well, the challenges uh, that they uh, face okay. and that is what is going to guide us and that's what's going to be can, our priority. Can you assure them that you will not accept a rates increase beyond inflation? Well, look, I can't go into that right now. These are all going to be decisions uh, for the uh, executive. But these but are the I issues. Has your party right. got a position on money, taking look, more money are... off the people of Northern Ireland? Are you going to accept look, the British government? Are you going to accept the executive taking more than inflation in terms of rates? Look, 
Stephen, uh, those are those are issues for for the uh, executive and for um, the finance minister to bring forward proposals. But I do want to reassure those that are six weeks to the side. The DP must have a position in that court. That are are worried. I want to I want to be very clear to the people that are listening here uh, this evening that we understand the challenges they face. We understand the pressures that they are under, and we're going to do everything that we can to ensure that we get a fair uh, settlement. Uh, And uh, I think it is important to to emphasise where the core problem is once more. It's the underfunding of uh, Northern Ireland, funded below need. That is why we're facing so many of the well, difficulties that Ma- we face this evening. Michelle O'Neill has ruled out water rates. She said no. I, I, can you say no, or is it a maybe, or is it a yes? Water charges. Look, look water charges, it's the exact same as, as that uh, increase in, in the rates. That would put uh, an unbearable burden upon people uh, in Northern Ireland. So is it a no? <laughs> Well, uh, is it as clear as Sinn Féin are being? Sinn Féin have yes, said what, no. What have, I, what have I just said? Water charges would be an unbearable burden on people in Northern Ireland, and that is not something that we believe is acceptable. What is acceptable is for Northern Ireland to be funded according to need. It's very, very simple. That's what we need to see and, happen. And, and look, if they lift that fiscal floor, okay, even more, if they wipe out that debt that you're talking about, what is it, $560 million? Is is that, in your view, enough that you don't need any revenue raising? Well, it's a it's a little bit more complicated than that because of the backdating will bring uh, additional revenue and additional revenue uh, every every single year. Look, there's no doubt that there are going to be uh, challenges ahead. There's going to be additional tough decisions. Uh, on, on, on budgets. And yes, there are going to be uh, difficult decisions that are going to be required in, in, in what we spend. But um, th- that, that has always been the case. But we have this additional burden right now of not being properly funded for the last number of years and the consequences uh, that that has as well. You see, people might, Minister, they, 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 they might accept that Northern Ireland needs more money. And I've heard your argument, and it's a very, very valid discussion to have about us us of having that debt because we were underfunded for a number of years. I hear it. But people might actually just want clarity so that over the next year they can think to themselves, we need to tighten our belts, our rates might go up. You haven't provided clarity over that tonight. They might think to themselves, okay, we're going to get hit with extra bills. And you're not prepared to give clarity. And surely Stormont is about tough decisions, but clear messages to the public. Yeah, and look, I, I wish that I was in a position where I could give that clarity tonight. But we need to continue the work that we have started uh, with the UK government to ensure that we can uh, get there and that we can get that uh, funding uh, in, in, in place. Um, this isn't uh, finished. Uh, there's still more work to do, and that's what we're committed to doing. So that's the Minister, uh, Gordon Lyons. Um, he took a lot of questions. Let's get your reaction this morning. 03030-805555. Jared, morning, Jared. Morning, Stephen. Yes, I, I think that the, the ministers, if they're, they're, they're going to go down the route of um, increasing the rates, I don't think they've thought it through very much because essentially there's a percentage, quite a high percentage of people, for example, people on pension credits, disabled people, people on universal credit, who get their rates paid for them. So essentially you're going to be adding 25 or 15% of rates that the government's going to pay anyway. That just doesn't make logical sense to me at all. Jared, thank you. Harold, morning, Harry. Morning, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Stephen, as a pensioner, 
How am I going to afford any increase the way they're talking? At the moment, I'm paying over a £1,000 a year for rates. And you know yourself, as a pensioner, our wages don't go up every year. So where am I going to get the money to pay any of these increases, whatever, 15% or 5% or 10 whatever it is? I couldn't afford it. Well, a couple of things around that, Harry. So your your your, your pension does go up with inflation. Okay, fair enough. But this is why the question, you, you, you might have noticed within that interview, I asked the DUP um, and Gordon was, was unable to, to, to definitively uh, give a policy on it. But one of the key questions I, I reckon I asked in that interview was, was the DUP against and an above inflation increase in household rates. They would not. Now, well, Michelle O'Neill hasn't hasn't given a verdict on that either. She's ruled out a fifteen percent increase in rates. But what about a ten percent increase? Is she ruled not out? What about no, a six percent increase? Is she ruled not out? But the the DUP shouldn't have went in. Daffy Donaldson shouldn't have went in. He should have knew all about these. That's coming in after the event. He 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 was duped by going in. He didn't know anything about this hundred and fifteen million we have to raise. Or if he, if he had he shouldn't have went in. It's as easy as that, Stephen. Well, don't forget that the political parties and, and Gordon confirmed it last night. Don't forget they're saying that the British government was talking to them about revenue raising. They were discussing it, but it wasn't agreed, which is why also I asked last night, well, look, did you make it clear what your parameters would be? Did you make it clear what you wouldn't, wouldn't do because revenue raising was being discussed? You know, they, Are you worried? Don't be in the, the uh, DUP mentioned anything like that. Stephen, you're the only one to bring these points out so that people can know what's going on. The DUP didn't mention that one time at all. Well, did any of the other? Well, did any of the other political parties mention it? When Sinn Fein were saying, "Let's get back in," when Sinn Fein's first minister Michelle O'Neill and the others were saying, "We need to get this executive up and going," did they? Did they tell you? They said everything would tickety boo when the when the assembly goes back in again. It's not happening. There's no crystal ball up on the hill, Stephen. But give them an opportunity. to come into the but people Harry, here, they're going to have to pay more money. And where are they going to get it? All the teachers, well, all the doctors, all the nurses, whoever's out in strike for more money, where are they going to get it, Stephen? I That's think the there point. is a really important point to make, Harry, to be fair to all of those political parties that wanted back into Stormont. And that was, don't forget that Chris Heaton-Harris was mm-hmm. essentially threatening to bring in many different revenue raising they were talking about water charges they were talking about other types of charges so Stephen, to see this to see this no, no, hold on a minute hold on a minute because okay, it's really okay. important this to see this as as a consequence of Stormont returning you're all getting hit with extra charges mm-hmm. and if it hadn't have returned you wouldn't have is false it's not fair in those politicians can i say to you water rate Stephen? Before yes, of course. Heaton Harris says anything about 
an increase on water rates or whatever it is, he should fix the leaks that the system has before he charges anyone a penny. Assuming well, that's a catch-22, isn't it? Because is, is totally ridiculous. That's a catch-22 because you could argue he needs the investment or we in Northern Ireland need the money in order to uh, fix it. Tell me this. Have you got, years, have you got spare the cash? People here, and the people are going to have to pay it, and that's the way it is. Ha, have but you, Harry, day, got spare cash for these the extra charges? The money? As a pensioner, have, I can't go on strike to get more money. Okay. I'm stuck with what I have, is what you said. That's that's very true. It goes up, uh, and that's inflation. But okay. it's not enough. And we are the lowest paid pensioners in the whole of Europe, Stephen. France, Harry, Germany, final question. In Poland, everywhere is more than us. I've got to go to the news this morning, all Harry. All the best, mate. Thank you so very final, much. So no, final, qu- hold on, final question. What do you say to all those political parties as they're considering revenue raising? What do you say to them? I would say... The, the people of Northern Ireland have suffered enough and you can't put any more pressure on them by looking for more money. They don't, they just don't have it, Stephen. That's about it, Stephen. Thank Harry, you very thank much, you for Stephen. Your call. So now we're in the real politic, aren't we? The real situation of how much money, extra money, are you going to have to pay over the next 12 months? How much can the political parties protect you from that? Don't forget that money will help the public services to improve that you want improved. So where's that money going to come from if, if, if it doesn't come from our pockets? Dr. Kira Fitzpatrick is a lecturer at University, Ulster University School of Law. Good morning, Kira. Good morning, Stephen. Good morning. Well, that, that money could come from, rather than our pockets, the British government absolutely going further than just acknowledging that we were underfunded for years, but paying for it. That's essentially what Gordon Lyon's argument was last night. Absolutely. And I would fully support Minister Lyons and other politicians in terms of negotiating funding according to need, which is going to be essential to put our public spending on a sustainable footing. Because in all honesty, Households in Northern Ireland simply do not have the additional income to meet the cost of additional revenue raising measures. I don't think anybody would disagree with the statement of being prepared to pay a little bit extra in order to get much improved public services which are in crisis across the board. But if you look at the Consumer Council's excellent um, expenditure tracker, the Northern Ireland Household Income Tracker, it shows that after um, household bills, Northern Ireland households have 20 £6.81 of discretionary income per week after paying all of those commitments that they already pay. So the big question for me is, where are Northern Ireland households getting the extra money to meet the costs of these potential rises, revenue raising measures or indeed rate rises? Well, Kira, as you know, there are people... And a, and a significant part of our community in Northern Ireland who have a lot more than 26 quid a week of spare cash. And then there are those who do not. You know, you, you, you look at car sales in Northern Ireland, you look at the new cars, you look at the, the BMWs and the Mercedes driving around Northern Ireland. There are some people who can pay. Should they be targeted? 
I think that there needs to be a proper investigation on rates before it's just a blanket, um, you know, a 15% for everybody, for example. It needs to be based on what a household can afford to pay, well, what their well, means me... are and what they can afford to pay. Well, let me ask you this. So if the executive lifted the cap on rates, because currently there is a cap, so it's 400-odd grand, isn't it? And, and, and therefore people with, much, with houses well beyond the valuation of 400 grand, they're not charged that, that, that amount over that in rates. If the executive lifted the cap, now yes, that could hit people who have a big house but don't have a lot of disposable income, but it would also hit the millionaires. It would also hit those people sitting on eight hundred, nine hundred million pound, two million pound houses in Northern Ireland, with the Porsches, the Ferraris, the Mercedes, the Audis sitting outside their door. Why not Again, consider it? Look, it, it's worth considering. It's a sloppy approach. We know that it. I'm not. I don't have the figures to my fingertips. I think it's between eleven and fourteen million pounds that it would raise, which isn't an insignificant sum of money. However, it comes nowhere close to this figure of 113 million that the British government is purportedly um, looking for from Northern Ireland, which I believe is completely unattainable in such a short period of time, and it would actually be um, negligence on the part of the politicians to go ahead with any short-term measures without properly thinking through how it's going to impact on household expenditure in Northern Ireland. This morning we've just had the news that that the UK has slipped into recession. Um, You know, our economy is not turning a corner. There are people who are very much struggling to get by. Our wages are 9% lower than the rest of the UK. um, And it's going to be very, very difficult to meet those costs. So I think it takes a serious and long-term conversation. This is not something that can be hammered out in a six-week period. Matthew Robinson from the Royal and Conservatives is listening this morning uh, as well. Good morning, Matthew. Good morning, Stephen. Is the reality not here, I heard a commentator say this last night, um, that the British government, so delighted now that local government here is restored, if the local parties stir them out and tell them where to shove their 113 million demand, the British government is probably going to blink. That's what was said last night. Is that true? The UK government has been more than reasonable and patient. I mean, you look at the package of measures, and this is before you even get to uh, the reforms to the, to, the, to the Windsor framework. You look at providing a needs-based factor in the Barnett formula to be set at 24% for, uh, from 24 to 25, an increase in the executive's annual capital borrowing limit by 10% in 24 to uh, 25 3.3 billion package, half a billion for uh, increases in public sector pay, increase in the executive spending power by up to 708 million o- over five years. The UK government has bent over to give the local parties every single available tool. Revenue raising was always part of the conversation with all local uh, local parties for for uh, local parties our leadership. Wasn't agreed. They're for our leadership, it was not agreed. For our leadership now to, to, to come out and, 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 and categorically say that there was no acknowledgement that this would have to be some f- a part of, of, of the package is not honest at all and does not reflect 
the, the spirit um, and the detail of the conversations the Northern Ireland office um, and the ministers had with our, our, our local politicians. That's that's the reality. The, the priority of the UK government is to set Northern Ireland on a stable financial um, uh, economic footing going going forward. If you, what frustrates me is our, our local parties, uh, our, 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 whether it's the DUP, Sinn Féin, have been given great tools here, and the DUP should be credited for their their, their negotiating strategy. I'm not trying to to, to not knock that, but there's a huge opportunity for Northern Ireland to to make a leap economically. And our local leaders are being so narrow-minded and, 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 and instead engaging in a political, a fabricated political spat with the UK government. If you're a big investor looking uh, to, to invest, to, to, to put some money into Northern Ireland in future, to, to, to create, some, create some jobs, you want to see an economy and an executive that has Northern Ireland on a stable economic footing. And by the way, the 180 million has an, another added incentive that the Treasury is willing to write off 600 million pounds of debt. That's debt that's on the shoulders of every single hardworking person in Northern Ireland. The question still remains where do you expect, where does the British government expect people to get the money from if they've nothing left in their pocket? So they're insisting it, on it this year. So, where do people, quite literally, where do people get the money from if they don't have it? Governing is about um, hard choices. Every, you heard from every single local party when you want to go back into Stormont and make the difficult decisions and deliver for the people um, in, in, in uh, Northern Ireland. It is for the local political parties. It's for every single member of the Northern Ireland executive, every single MLA, to, to make a determination on, on, on where revenue raising uh, well, many of them is have made a determination from. and they're saying there's no way at this time that people have it well uh, if, 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 if there's no satisfactory conclusion to, 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 to this impasse I'm afraid and this is I, I, I think the concern of the UK government we're just going to be right back at square one a year a year from now waiting for another economic bailout is that really a way to govern uh, Northern Ireland. I mean, to, to, to act in a way as, as, as if we're a, a, a developing country in need of, of, of humanitarian aid from, from, from the UK government. No, we're, a, we're, we're part of, of one of the, mo the most powerful G7 economies in, in the world. Northern Ireland has an incredibly bright and educated young workforce. We have we have super uh, tools now with the Windsor framework with dual access both into the UK market and the EU market. Uh, 3.3 billion um, a, a, a package and all the UK government is asking is, is that Northern Ireland can generate a, a fair degree of, 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 of income uh, locally. It was always part of the conversation and, and I'm afraid I, all you're seeing from our local parties now is they're trying to dodge and, and place blame on, 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 on a UK government that has been nothing but patient and acted in good faith throughout this whole process. Kira. With respect, Matthew is so far away from the reality of the situation. Our politicians are actually acting responsibly in this situation and acknowledging that families in Northern Ireland, pensioners in Northern Ireland, and those who are on the lowest incomes will be unable to meet the cost of this revenue-raising measures. He does not acknowledge there that last year the Conservative Secretary of State for Northern Ireland set a budget which absolutely slaughtered all of our public 
public, public services, from health to education to social security to infrastructure. There is untold damage that has been done. There is untold support that has been cut from those who are on the lowest incomes. There is a huge mountain to climb and just sloppily adding to household bills at this crucial time of people struggling, it would just be completely nonsensical from both a political perspective and from a moral perspective. And it's very, very easy for Matthew to say that the Conservative government have really given us all a favour, when in reality they have crushed the Northern Ireland economy, they have crushed our public services and politicians in Northern Ireland deserve the space and opportunity to look at what we can do to literally recover or indeed we will be like a um, developing country who needs support because the Conservative government have rendered us so. Kira, thank you. Matthew, thank you. Good morning. Peter's next. Morning, Peter. Thanks. Good morning, Stephen. Uh, I'm just a wee bit concerned as well. When they take this money up us and the pensioners and those single people who live in homes, that they're, they're having to pay the full rate themselves as an individual, where this money eventually ends up? For instance, yesterday, or was this day last week, Thursday, uh, listening to Zemu, um, Mark Simpson came on to tell us that the figure for Chaseland Park is actually double what we read in the papers. It's 300 million, and that's the figure going around Stormont. Well, well look, there are many figures going around, including 200 million, 300 yeah. million is what you're saying this morning. That, that, that figure has not been confirmed, nowhere close to it has it been Well, confirmed. that's what Mark Simpson came out with. But then I also, uh, reading it there on the internet there this morning, there's a whole issue with Belfast City Council, that they have been asked for all the information for them, the extra millions that were given over the COVID period, how they spent it, and they were asked for this over a year ago, and they still haven't produced them for the audit. So I got to ask myself: They're taking this money off people like this, people with disabilities, and not sitting in their homes. Maybe can't get out, and if they can't meet these bills, if there's water rates, extra rates, and that, well, some people would turn to them and say, "Well, sell your house if you can't afford it." But they can't get up and move, and all the stress, and at an age, they can't face all those things. So there's all this drip, 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 the unknown. There's people going to bed tonight wondering what's ahead of them. I, well, they have listen, the home over. Well, they have I, the roof over their, their head, and it, this time it, next year. Look, it's it's why I was so grateful to Gordon Lyons for coming on last night. For the other political parties, for engaging with the Nolan Show, there is abs. It is absolutely a statement of fact that there will be some people in our community at the bottom of the earning cycle. Those people who who cannot afford, they don't have the luxury. They're, they're waiting from one paycheck to the next, as you know, Peter. And it must be terrifying for them to, to listen it to is. the news. And to and, and it's the unknown. How much extra them, money are they going to be required to pay? And well, I'm one of those people. Like a lot of people there. And it's painful to see. And the, the, to see some of the stories that we've seen over the last year, where, where our money's being spent. For instance, thousands of pounds on portraits of councillors in the City Hall all this sort of thing. Somebody's got to tighten up. The government's got to maybe give somebody the job to say, watch our money. Where is this going? How has it been spent? So it's a, that drills into the core that as part of the discussion that you will have heard in the news cycle, 
newspapers, radio stations, television stations, that, that what is dominating the discussion is revenue raising, okay? Taking more money, charging more tax, in other words. But the other side of the argument is, of course, how much can they save so that they don't need as much from us? How much can they cut their costs? Can they get rid of the squander if it exists? Or if you think the nursing homes, there's a lot of people who, who are thinking maybe their future might be in nursing homes. And we've heard lately the number of them have closing down because they can't meet the costs. Are these costs also going to be put onto nursing homes and we're going to lose more nursing homes? You, you, you mentioned, Peter, that you're one of those people that finds it tight. Can you explain to me how tight you get it? Bring a reality check to those people contemplating this decision about well, revenue raising? Well, people don't dwell on these things. You know, there's a lot of people like myself, you know, you're seeing on the television all these holidays and places to go to and that. I've had one day in Dublin in the last three years, and I'm happy with it. That's okay. I'm fit enough to get up and go there. But there's a lot of people who happen to work, Peter? get up. Pardon? Do you work? No, no. And the other and thing, like too, to yes, but there was benefits that I can explain to you again. There's a certain figure that you're entitled to benefits. And if your income through pensions is maybe 20 or 30 pounds more, there's a number of benefits that you lose out on that you don't get. And would, you're not entitled then to benefit on rates. You're not entitled. There's so many. There's a list of health you, or whatever else. Would you like to find a job, Peter? Well, I'm at an age now. I am not fit. And I also have health issues. Okay. Okay. Peter, thank you. So, thank you very much for okay. talking to us this morning. Mike's next morning, Mike. Morning, Stephen. Go ahead, sir. Um, just, just a wee point. Um, you see, if you're paying your rates, that's probably a small thing about raising money, but a lot of small things can, can help, you know. Um, if you pay your rates in one go, if I'm not mistaken, you get like a 10% discount. On and what? for people who can do that, pay it in one go, whereas if you're paying it by direct debit, you're charged more. If I you, don't think it's ten percent on rates, but it's certainly there certainly is there's a discount if you pay sort. one you know, so, so the people yeah. who can afford, and I mean that's a bit unfair than the people who can't afford to pay it and, and one go for a start. You know what I mean? But it might only be a small thing. I have no idea how much it is. But you know, surely if they've done away with that discount, the people who can afford to pay it in one go are still going to pay it in one go. And even if they didn't, if it's done on direct debit, well, it might be a small amount raised. But the other point that I wanted to make to you was. If this dual access is so important and so good that Richie Sunak told us it was going to be and it's going to bring such wealth and prosperity to Northern Ireland, well, why would they not? Why would they be trying to take more money off us? Why aren't they investing more in us instead of taking us off and trying to put us under the water? You know, well, if this is going to be the hub that they, the hub, the hub that they, well, yes, but I mean, you know, that's. You know, they're, they're taking up, they're asking us to raise revenue. So if they want to be committed to what Mike. they said was going to be such a good thing, why don't they follow up and just let this take its course, invest more and more to bring all that, you know, okay. work and money Mike, to Mike, thank you very much. I've got to leave it there, if you don't mind. Uh, we'll come back to more of your calls. Very reactive this this morning. We'll come back to more of your calls later in the programme. But uh, another important story today, a warning from the Deputy Chief Medical Officer that it's only a matter of time before Northern Ireland gets its first case of measles in seven years. An alarming rate, they said, in infections across Europe, including cases in England and Ireland. Uh, the Deputy Chief Medical Officer, Professor Lourdes 
uh, Gagan is with me this morning. Good morning. Good morning, Stephen. Have I pronounced your name right, first of all? I want to get it right. Yes, it's Lourdes, Stephen. Thank you. Lourdes. Lourdes, good morning. So why is this alarming? It's alarming, Stephen, because as we have highlighted this morning, um, we are unfortunately seeing a very considerable rise in cases of measles, of measles infections. And we're seeing that rise, as we've highlighted in other parts of Europe. We are seeing it in parts of England. And sadly, we also know that our colleagues in Ireland reported a death from measles last week. So while we haven't seen any cases locally yet, Stephen... Um, measles is such a highly infectious disease that uh, our assessment is it is probably only a matter of time before we see some cases here in Northern Ireland. And it, 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 how dangerous is measles and how common is it for children and, and adults to get it and, and survive? And it's just yet another thing that we get and we move on and it's part of life. Very good question, Stephen. A very, very good question. Um, and it's a helpful opportunity for us this morning just to reflect on the fact that measles actually can be a very severe illness. We tend to forget that, Stephen, mainly because our vaccination programs have been very successful up to recent years. So um, when I was a child, um, you know, we would have experienced a lot more cases of measles, albeit they may not have always been very severe. But the worry now is, is twofold. One, our vaccination rates are declining. And the other thing we have to bear in mind is that we forget that measles can potentially be a very serious illness. And the seriousness really relates to the fact that measles is a viral infection. And unfortunately, when people get measles, if they have particular risks, they can get a bacterial infection on top of the measles. So that's like a a middle ear infection or infection in their lungs like pneumonia. Um, And it is very often those quite serious secondary infections that cause um, significant illness and tragically, as we have seen in Ireland, can cause death. So why are the vaccination rates for measles going down? You see, when I was a kid and I got a BCG, and this is taking me way back, I can remember the wee imprint on my shoulder. Was, was that for measles or what was that for? So uh, it's 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 uh, funny you would remember that, um, Stephen, because I too remember getting my my both my BCG and my measles vaccine. Now BCG, which we all will remember getting in school, that vaccine is actually against TB, so okay. doesn't doesn't relate to measles. But I think many of us will remember getting a measles containing vaccine. So why is the vaccination rate going down? Why? So uh, a very complicated picture, Stephen. I would say in relation to the vaccinations. Um, partially, just as we've reflected, we forget that measles can be a very serious infection. And um, the more successful we have been with the vaccination, the less and less measles we're seeing. So people nowadays don't actually know quite a lot of the time that measles can be serious. And sometimes, as you say, lots of other things happen in life and we see lots of other infections. And uh, it's important for us to remember that we must get vaccinated for measles. That's that's one particular factor. We all obviously have come through the COVID pandemic and we've been focusing a lot on COVID vaccines. Um, and now it's time for us to re-emphasize and think across all of the other vaccines. Um, and, and many it, parents listening will, you know, will, will, of course, have their child's red book. And they'll be thinking about the childhood vaccines that all our children get. And very importantly, in that sequence of vaccinations, is MMR, 
which is the measles, mumps and rubella vaccine, which is the one that we're talking about here. And is that ruled out throughout schools uh, yes. as yes. common so practice? Routinely, we offer the MMR vaccine uh, two doses and we offer the first dose to children when they're a year old. OK, and that's usually done via the general practice. And then the second vaccine is when the child is about three and a half. OK, um, and it's important that everybody uh, receives two vaccines. Now, they're very good vaccines. They give very good protection and they're also very safe vaccines. Are you targeting children here or are there sufficient numbers of adults without a vaccine that you need them to get it? Yeah, Where's the we're, priority we're, here? We're, we're targeting and we've just launched an MMR catch-up campaign, Stephen. Um, very helpful opportunity for us to highlight this this morning. And we're really thinking of everybody up to the age of 25. OK, so we're thinking about children, particularly about children. And what we're seeing in the cases of measles in other parts of Europe and the UK is about two thirds in children. So very, very important that children get their vaccines. Um, and are you worried, Lerda, about an individual cases or are you worried about a significant outbreak being possible in Northern Ireland? We're, we're very worried about both things, Stephen, I, I would say, and we are very concerned. Um, tragically, as I've said, we've seen the death um, in an adult, a single case um, of uh, related to measles in Ireland very recently. So once we begin to get single cases, because measles is so infectious, it transmits so easily, um, the likelihood is that we will see clusters of cases and outbreaks. So there's a risk for both, Stephen. When you say you're very worried, like what does that mean? Are you expecting death in Northern Ireland Well, through measles? Well, one of the ways that we uh, can work with everybody to reduce the risk and to reduce our concern is to encourage everybody now to avail of this catch-up campaign for MMR because the way to prevent individual cases and to prevent the outbreaks we've just talked about is to make sure that everybody's vaccinated and that individuals get two doses and that we get a good coverage overall across our population. That's one of the ways that really will help us to reduce the risk. Okay. Thank you very much indeed for coming on the radio this morning. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. New figures released by the Northern Ireland Statistics and Research Agency show that the number of alcohol deaths in Northern Ireland has increased by 45%. Over the past decade, the number of alcohol-specific fatalities accounted for 356 deaths in one year alone in 2022. Dr. Alan Stout is chair of the BMH GP Committee in Northern Ireland. What is going on, Alan? Good morning. Yeah, good morning, Stephen. I mean, these figures are very interesting for, for a couple of reasons. I mean, one is that it, it kind of adds data, it adds figures to what we've already known and always known, and that is that lifestyle, not just alcohol, but lifestyle is such a contributing factor to people's life. But this is talking quite clearly about alcohol and the effects of alcohol. And this is what we have been promoting over and over uh, for many, many years. But the other big factor within this is that this is only the tip of the iceberg type of uh, figures, because uh, as you mentioned uh, at the outset, these are for alcohol-specific deaths. So these are ones that are these are deaths that are unfortunately very directly contributing uh, or contributed to alcohol itself. Um, but there are many, many more that alcohol is a very significant contributing factor to the illness and, and ultimately to the death it's as well. 
So Look, it is really alcohol, it will, it, will, it will always lead to the deaths of some people, and indeed some people think they will live their life, they'll, they'll, they'll drink whatever amount they want to, and if it shortens their life, they'll enjoy their drinking while, while they do it. I'm not talking about to such an excess um, that, that they're able to function during the day. I, I'm interested, Alan, in what is the reason behind the increase, do you think? That 45% over 10 years looks like a shocking figure. What is going on? Is it more people self-medicating under the stress of modern society or what is going on do you think yeah they they will be and and i mean it is about it's about society as it is at the moment you only need to go out at, at night and you see the patterns and the changes and the uh, you know it is about the the volume of alcohol the, the kind of binge drinking taking it in large amounts and exceeding the the you know regularly exceeding what are the recommended uh units so i mean it's where stories like this it's where reporting like this is is always important because we have to keep these big health promotion items at the forefront of people's minds and you're right some people so, just will will never listen but, but some you support minimum will. pricing then yeah for so a unit of alcohol yeah, so again, it's, it's really interesting when you look at the Northern Ireland figures and the increase in the deaths. Scotland have, have done the opposite to us They uh, and their patterns are the opposite to ours. They introduced minimum unit pricing in quite a number of years ago. I think it was uh, 2018. And they've actually seen a reduction, a 13.4% reduction in alcohol-related deaths. So you can see very clearly uh, that, that various measures can have a big effect uh, and, th- and it's not a it's not a, a kind of magic answer it's not a, a single answer but it in itself does introduce that public awareness as well uh, and can have have a, a, a quite a major effect on those figures listening to this is colin neil the chief exec of hospitality ulster that the minimum pricing of, of a unit of alcohol colin um, i know by its very definition it will push the price up to a minimum level, but that might save lives, Colin. We're not objecting to it. And in fact, I think um, today, you know, all of the industry off trade and on trade ha- have moved on. I know nobody that is actually objecting to minimum unit price. Some may say, are going to say, well, okay, we represent the, the on trade, the pubs, hotels, restaurants, and it wouldn't really impact us. You know, we're looking at to send people to us, but it won't. You know, this is about you know, anybody selling alcohol, you know, has to realise, and the vast majority do, we sell a controlled substance, and that need, that comes with responsibilities. What can the hospitality sector do in terms of more? Well, I mean, if you look at the hospitality sector, one, the majority of alcohol is now sold and consumed at home. Uh, it's something like seventy six percent the last time I looked of alcohol is sold and consumed at home. We provide a regulated environment. We actually uh, ourselves as an industry body uh, led and helped establish the responsible retailing code in Northern Ireland. The only jurisdiction actually on all these islands with it that actually monitors through an independent complaints panel, monitors uh, irresponsible promotions and such. And we've, you know, as an industry now, I mean, non-alcoholic products are a key element of our offer uh, and they're growing and growing in popularity huge changes in younger people's drinking habits. You know, they don't drink like I, I came from the, the baby boomer age. That You know, younger people don't drink like that anymore. You know, they, they are much more sensible uh, about consumption of alcohol. Okay, Alan, thank you uh, for coming on this morning. Good morning to you. Colin, before you go today, 
Um, can, can I ask you, obviously, the main discussion on our programme over recent days has been the, the possible revenue-raising measures that the executive might have to look at. Certainly the British government want them to. If it included a, re- a rise in business rates, Colin, what impact would that have on your sector? I mean, we, we appreciate, look, everybody has to pay fair tax. But the, the rises we're seeing already, I mean, and I flag, flag the like of, again, mid and East Antrim, who seem to be on a campaign. You know, they're talking about a 12% increase. They already have, and I know we've talked about this before, Stephen, and, and you, you've joked with me, and I've invited you to come to Lauren. Lauren, if you look, it, it all comes down to poundage. A Lauren business pays 62p in the pound. The City of London business pays 52p in the pound, and indeed theirs includes a security levy. We have maxed out rates on businesses. And, you know, I appreciate nobody wants to see rates go up, but if they're going up, it has to be proportionate. Businesses just can't take any more, particularly the hospitality sector. It is struggling. It has struggled through COVID. It has come out the other side. We live in that discretionary disposable income. The costs have gone to a level uh, that they're just unsustainable. And and saying, okay, well, we have to put the rates up. I mean, it has to come down to then, there has to be efficiency savings. It may be a case for a while some services can't be delivered because if you keep putting rates up, there'll be nobody there to pay them. Colin, thank you very much. Morning to you, Robert. Next morning, Robert. Good morning, Stephen. Stephen, you're all talking about the high fatality rates and with alcohol. Yes. Okay, this is my main point. Um, you've reported this in recent times that the uh, high fatality rates with the homeless in Belfast City Centre is due to alcohol and uh, drugs related. Uh, my, my point here is that the general public really want to be kind to the homeless on the city centre. They should be really banning flows and giving them food or coffees, etc. Under no circumstances should they be giving them money to actually uh, end their lives. Well, there, there is so much in that, isn't there? Because there, there are resources that, that governments and councils, including in the UK, give to help people come off addiction, uh, Robert, rather than hard cash. Is that what you're saying? Hundred percent, Stephen. And the, the, the other, the other bigger side of the coin is too. And all businesses have to succeed with the high prices of alcohol in uh, social environments. People are now restricting themselves to going to off sales in supermarkets and excessively drinking at home, and that probably does result in fatalities as well, because there's no such a thing as last orders when you're drinking at home, Stephen. Let me ask you a different question with a different subject. You're a taxi driver. You're a working class guy. What What is your outlook in your head listening to the news about possible revenue-raising measures that, that could hit people like you? We don't know yet. We don't know what they're going to do. They say well, they haven't agreed with the British government, but what does it feel like to you? Have you much spare cash at the end of the week to pay more? No, no. Taxi drivers, Stephen, in, in recent times, Taxi drivers are sitting truthfully for an hour, an hour and forty minutes waiting on a job. Now you're talking about you're talking about Stormont. Truthfully, I, this is what I don't understand about the Stormont executive. Should be pushing for their own local treasury. 
Now, they're talking about they have to give 113 million back. Why don't they push the uh, Westminster to have their own local treasury here, all taxes that generates here, stay in here, and also that uh, Westminster underfunded under here for decades so they could still really pay that, backdate that and bring it forward? And truthfully and honestly, uh, I'll give you one example, Stephen, just off the top of my head. If you visualize this, how many millions of litres of fuel does the general public use? Now, the biggest percentage of a litre of fuel, where does it go? Government tax. So the cheapest fuel is about 139. So if you visualize all that as one example into our own local treasury, Everything that's earned here, food, alcohol, etc., in our own local treasury. See, look, always remember well, this, there Stephen. Isn't, there isn't a local treasury. No, but that money, I know there's not that, a local treasury, but this is what you got to understand. Hello? Okay, Robert, Stephen. thank you very much. Morning All to right. you. Barney next. Morning, Barney. Hello. Calling us from Derry today. Morning, Barney. Uh, Stephen, it's just a, at certain times I hear you saying the regional rate is going to increase by 15%, and then at other times you say the rates are going to increase by 15%. But can I just point out, I think like you've already said, on average throughout the district councils and the councils in Northern Ireland, the uh, district, the regional and the district rates are about around about 50% each of the rates. Isn't that right? Yeah. So if the regional rate goes up 15%, that means the rates go up 7.5%. Okay? Well, it depends, how, it depends how much the councils put the domestic rate up by, doesn't it? Well, <laughs> if you look over all the councils, the domestic rate and the regional rate, you know, are, you know there, now there are some quite big differences, but overall they're around about 50-50. Well, if you, you look know? at uh, if you look at some of the domestic rate increases for twenty four twenty five that that have been announced, it's it's ranging from Lisburn and Castlereagh look to me to be the lowest. This is the domestic rate increase determined by the council. So, if you're living in the Lisburn and Castlereagh area, three point nine eight percent. Compare that to Mid East Antrim, nine point seven eight percent. So, if you're living in that Mid East Antrim area. And I know this yeah. is being discussed. You're thinking to yourself, hold on, this is just in the domestic rate part, 9.78%. Newry, more than down, 6.4%. Mid Ulster, 59 Lisburn and Castlereagh, the lowest, 3.98%. Fermanagh and Oma, 4.72%. and Derry and Straban. Causeway, Coast and Glens, 6.86%. Yes. Yes, but that's you're talking about the overall rate. That's the district rate and the regional rate added together. Council domestic rate, I'm talking about. Ards and North Down, where I live, 5.98%. Listen, thank you. Good morning. Thank you for coming okay. on this morning, 03030805555. Drivers in Northern Ireland may have to wait even longer than expected for MOT test backlogs to clear. Why? Well, the Department for Infrastructure said a new test centre at Hyde Bank in South Belfast, due to open in 2022, uh, is now scheduled to open later this year. Not only that, but a new test centre at Molusk, uh, scheduled to open in 2024, is now planned for 2025.
2025. Why? Why the delay? Now, one of those people who have had trouble with getting an appointment is Richard. Morning, Richard. Good morning, Stephen. Um, How long have you had the wait? Well, recently it's going to be uh, a couple of months, and uh, in the past it's even been longer. It depends what time uh, you, you can get in and, and book in. The whole process is well organised online when you're booking online. Uh, and the people I realise are working flat out, so it's not their fault. But the problem is in the outcome, and, and the problem itself creates consequences which uh, have the people may not be aware of, like myself. Uh, do you want me to continue, Stephen? I don't want to blather on here. Oh no, um, no, no! Listen, I'm 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 just listening to you. But the okay. the, the, the delay in getting an MOT test again, Richard, it it, it affects obviously, you know. <laughs> well, it's again but, another example of how those people that have a car that's more than, what is it, three years old. In other words, those people that aren't changing their car every couple of years, they're not buying a new yeah. car. They're yeah. getting hit here with more inconvenience, yeah. more delays, more money well, if they the, can't the, go to work. Well, the consequences that I think people are not aware of, I wasn't aware of it until the guy who does my car, the mechanic I used to fix my car up for MOTs and for servicing, of course, as well. Um his, uh, he, he explained to me that his brother's daughter was in a similar situation to a lot of people that couldn't get a date that corresponded to the one where their own date for the car, uh, MOT, expired. And the, the date was going to be several weeks or months down the line. And when he investigated the uh, insurance consequences, he said to the insurance company, well, what happens here? And they said, well, no MOT, no insurance. Well, there's obviously in the, the complications with that. But yeah. a lot of us thought that if we get our MOT booked in, we've done the right thing. We try to be the honest citizen and uh, consequently we'll just carry on motoring away. But uh, no, that doesn't apply. Now, I have to, if you don't mind me going on, I, 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 he suggested to me, mechanic suggested to me a possible solution to some of the, 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 the pile-up. And one is, if you do get a car through the MOT, why not get it automatically booked in for the same time next year? And I know that would be a delay in uh, the whole thing unfolding and uh, getting sorted out. But another possible approach might be to do what they do in other sectors of industry. If you can't cope, you subcontract out to work out. The mechanic... And that, that is, I, I remember us discussing this a year ago, two years ago, that those private garages, if they were able to do the... Um, M- MOT test. Now, there's an argument for it and there's an argument against it, but that it might sort the backlog. Tony Rich is with his AA Public Relations Manager. Tony, how big is this problem? How, how frustrating is it getting for people trying to get an MOT? Um, yeah, it's it, it a problem. And as as the caller said there, the, the, the frustrations, they, they, they lead on to further complications where people are not sure can they drive, can they not drive? Um, yeah. Massive frustration. Okay. You're actually on to talk to us, Tony, then about another matter, which is potholes um, in, in in Northern Ireland. Our infrastructure minister, John O'Dowd, has announced there will be an additional one million quid made available for pothole repair. Is that enough? It's not enough to cure the problem. No, I mean it's welcome. I mean that we recently did a survey on our AA members. Ninety-six percent of them said they want to see more investment. So it's a step in the right direction. But uh, that additional million pound, according to the Asphalt Industry Alliance stats, says that will cover about fifteen thousand potholes 
Um, but the Northern Ireland currently has about 110,000 outstanding. So it's, uh, it's a step in the right direction, but it won't cover them all. Sorry, with 110,000 potholes? Apparently, yeah. Can I ask yeah. a, a basic question? I yeah. see, on my, on my way home, in my little life, right, I see the same potholes getting fixed, then deteriorating, getting fixed, then deteriorating. I'll tell you what, it's a, it's a, it's a great business for somebody. So what is going yeah. on? Can we not fix a pothole and it stays fixed? Yeah, I mean, th- that's the reason why the AA, um, with, along with uh, JCB British Cycling and the National Motorcyclist Council, recently formed the uh, Pothole Partnership to ask for exactly that, rather than uh, doing a patch and run. Because these patch and run, uh, they're, they're known as a reactive repair. They're more expensive than, than a, a permanent repair, believe it or not, or a planned repair um, because they, they're kind of done on spec. So what, what the, the pothole part, uh, partnership is asking for is permanent repairs. So there's like machines like the JCB Pothole Pro where it goes along and it doesn't just fill the hole, you know, basically put a bag of um, instant tarmac in a hole, pat it down and drive away. This digs up the hole uh, and the surface around it, which is often damaged, um, makes it neat and tidy, cleans it out, and then fills and seals the hole. And we're, you know, that's what we prefer to see because, as you, well, just I wonder how much of that we're doing in Northern Ireland rather than the fix and run as you described. Would it be possible to make a comment, Stephen? Yes, of course. Um, it's, it's, it's maybe not as technical as the other chap there, the other fella. Um, near me, there's a road that has so many potholes. It's, it's almost like a moonscape, Tarmacadam moonscape. And it's got the extent now where there's actually uh, one of the, some individual has put a warning sign, not an official warning sign, uh, a legal one that you see <laughs> speed limits and so on, but they've created their own warning sign. Uh, beware potholes. Now, some of these potholes have been there so long, they're almost going to become part of some sort of illicit process, preserved, preserved order uh, thing, because it's ridiculous. Yeah. And some yeah. of them are, some potholes you come across are painted. And it's like some sort of three-dimensional modern art. And one of my friends just uh, as recently as about a week or so ago, his vehicle went into a pothole, causing around at least £700 worth of repair needed for the, 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 the yeah. damage well, you done, can sue them, not just the first year. You can sue them. The Department of Infrastructure uh, have said that they're fixing um, uh, a number 7,000 potholes a month um, I'm really interested, in Tony, in that in that contrast you're drawing between the fix and run method of filling in a hole in the road and that longer term, better as you as you're describing it, um, scheme. Do you know how many of the 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 longer lasting repairs we do in Northern Ireland compared to the fix and run? I haven't got the stats for it, no, because it's a relatively new uh, process. And that's come from investment um, in the, you know, in road repair, if you like. And what, because the funds often get put into the pot and then are not ring fenced, it kind of stops that kind of investment in, in creating these kind of repairs because people are unsure whether to to start uh, sort of innovating and 
making new fixes because they don't want to get okay. halfway through it and then the funding reserves. So that's if the, if the funds are ring-fenced, then you know they know that investment is there and they can carry on and innovate um, and that you know that's what we're calling for, for for that just you know let's deal with the problem once and for all let's say we're going to make a repair to the road it's going to stay repaired and you know people i mean it's affecting cyclists rural areas it's even affecting pedestrians because quite often if there's no public transport they're having to walk on country roads into these potholes if it's dark you can't see the pothole you know, if you fall on a, on a dark country lane, then, it, you know, it begs, you know, it begs, you know, somebody's we, going to get hurt. You know? We'll ask the question. We'll ask the department how many of that, uh, we'll get the official term for it or some explanatory Stephen, could you ask the department? We'll ask how many of that longer term fix uh, that they are actually doing. Tony, thank you very much uh, indeed. Thank you for coming on this morning. Thank you, Richard. Zero thirty thirty eighty fifty five fifty five. Time for just a few more calls. John and Dungallon. Morning, John. Good morning, Stephen. How are you? Doing okay today. I'm all right today. No, it was a late good. night last night with Nolan live. Up oh, this yeah, morning, so I see. Yeah. bright and breezy is a complete lie. I crawled out of bed this morning. Crawled. There you are. <laughs> but anyway, Stephen, getting back to MOT. Why don't we uh, do what the rest of Europe's doing and extend the QR period to two years? That would reduce the backlog massively and try and get us back online with MOT. Have you faced a backlog? Yeah. I was due at the end of January. I'm having to wait to the 14th of March. But I, I booked way back in October. In October? Uh-huh. I see the department here saying in 2022-23... DVA conducted 1.15 million uh, vehicle tests, the highest number ever recorded in a year. Yeah. They say that that increase in capacity has been achieved through a range of measures, including the recruitment of additional vehicle examiners, the use of overtime to provide cover for leave, offering vehicle yeah. test appointments on Sundays and back holidays when testing is not normally available, they say. No, but if it just extended the, the period, even if they only extended it for a few years just to reduce the backlog, it would work yeah. for them. John, thank you. Sam, next morning, Sam. Morning, Stephen. How are you doing? Go ahead. Stephen, um, I, I obviously, but the government or the thing he's experienced this problem before about 10 years ago where I had to make my way over to Scotland and get my van, or sorry, my car, MOT'd over in Scotland. That was dead on. Obviously, a bit of a more financial impact on myself, but it, it had to be done just to get my car through the MOT. This is obviously happening again. What I'm in uh, what I'm querying about is so if there's that much of a big backlog, well, obviously I've tried now to get my MOT. I can't get my MOT to June. My MOT ran out June. in January, June, and I, do you know what it is, Stephen? As well, I, I have to travel to London to get uh, to get my Van MOT. So not only am I having to travel to the other side of the country, I live in Bangor, so it's it's a brief bit out. But I'm having to wait to June. My my tax my tax is due in May. To say obviously keep logging on to get cancellations. If there's that if they're that scarce, why is there so many cancellations happening? It just yeah. doesn't add up. I have a funny okay. feeling that it has to be that if you pay, you pay more money, you get it quicker. Same with the health service, same with no. the... Uh, well, 
No, that's not the case, Sam. But listen, unfortunately, I can't discuss that with you because I'm out of time this morning. Um, busy show. Thank you for your company. Don't forget, you can listen again on BBC Sounds. We'll see you tomorrow morning, bright and breezy, 9 o'clock. Connor's coming next. Thank you for your company. The biggest show in the country. Listen again on BBC Sounds. Tweet at Stephen Nolan. In a digital world that demands your attention, it can be challenging to build your own worldview. The Financial Times brings you rigorous and independent global journalism, so you can see more angles and find time to think for yourself. Don't jump to conclusions. Read to them instead. Fearlessly Pink. Financial Times. Read more at ft.com fearless.